Scouting for trolls, dwarfs and humans was brought in shortly after the Coombe Valley Accord had been signed on the suggestion of Lord Vetinari to allow the young of the three dominant species to meet and hopefully get along together. Naturally, the young of all species, when thrown together, instead of turning against one another, would join forces against the real enemy, that is to say, their parents, teachers, and miscellaneous authority, which was so old-fashioned. And, up to a point, and amazingly, it had worked, and that was ank more pork, wasn't it? Mostly, nobody cared what shape you were, although they might be very interested in how much money you had. And as he ran, he tried to figure out what it was that he had done wrong. After all, it had taken him forever by various means to get to Überwald, and he was a dwarf, and they were dwarfs, and... It dawned on him that there had been something in the newspapers back home saying that there were still a few dwarf societies that would have nothing to do with any organisation that included trolls, the traditional and visceral enemy. Well, there were certainly trolls in the pack back home, and they were good sports, all of them. A bit slow, mind you, but he had occasionally gone to tea with some of them, and vice versa. Only now he remembered how occasionally old trolls and older dwarfs were upset for no other reason than that after hundreds of years of trying to kill one another, they, by means of one handshake, were supposed to have become friends. Magnus had always understood that the low city of the Low King was a dark place, and that was okay for dwarfs, as dwarfs and darkness always got on well together. But here he sensed a deeper darkness. In this trying moment it seemed that here he had no friends apart from his grandmother, and it looked as though there was going to be a lot of trouble between him and the other side of the town where she lived. He was panting now, but he could still hear the sounds of pursuit, even though he was leaving the deeper corridors and tunnels behind him and heading out of the underground city of Schmalzberg, realising he would have to come back another day or another way. As he stopped briefly to get his breath back, a guard on the city gate stepped into his path with a certain greedy expression. "'And where do you think you are going in a hurry, Mr. Ankh-Morpork? "'Back to the light with your troll friends, eh?' The guard's spontoon knocked Magnus's feet from under him, and then the kicking started in earnest. Magnus rolled to get out of the way, and as a kind of reflex shouted, "'Tack does not want us to think of him, but he does want us to think!' He groaned and spat out a tooth as he saw another dwarf coming towards him. To his dismay, the newcomer looked middle-aged and well-to-do, which certainly meant that there would be no friendship here. But instead of administering a kicking, the older dwarf shouted in a voice like hammers, "'Listen to me, young dwarf! You must never let your guard down like this!' The newcomer smacked his original assailant to the ground with commendable ferocity and a gloriously unnecessary display of violence, and as the guard lay groaning, he pulled Magnus upright. "'Well, you can run, kid. Much better than most dwarfs, I know. But a boy like you should know that Ankh-Morpork dwarfs are not in favour at the moment, at least not around these parts. To tell you the truth, I'm not that happy about them myself, but if there's a fight, it must be a fair one.' At that, he kicked the stricken guard very hard and said, "'My name is Bashful Bashfulson. You, lad, better get yourself some micro-mail.' "'if you're going to come calling on your granny looking all ank more pork. "'And it is a shame I am that my fellow dwarfs treat a young dwarf so badly "'just because of what he wears.' 
and the full stop to that rant was yet another blow to the recumbent guard. "'I'll hand it to you, lad. I really have never seen a dwarf that can run as fast as you are doing. My word you can run, but it might now be time to learn how to hide.' Magnus brushed himself down and stared at his saviour, saying, "'Bashful, bashful, son, but you're a legend.' And he took a step backwards, saying, "'I've read all about you. You became a grag because you don't like Ank Morpork.' I may not, young dwarf, but I don't hold with killing in the darkness like those bastard deep downers and delvers. I like a stand-up fight me. Saying this, Bashful Bashfulson kicked the fallen guard heavily yet one more time with his enormous iron-clad boot. And one of the most well-known and well-respected dwarfs in the world held out his hand to young Magnus and said, Now, let your talent take you to safety. As you said, Tack does not require us to think of him, but remember that he does require us to think. And you might want a thought or two about adjusting your attire when you come back to visit your granny again. Besides, she might not appreciate Ank Morpork fashions. Nice to have met you, Mr. Speedy. And now, get your sorry ass out of here. I might not be around next time. Far away, and turn-wise of Uberwald, Sir Harry King was pondering on the business of the day. He was widely known as the King of the Golden River because of the fortune he had made minding other people's business. Harry was normally a cheerful man with a good digestion, but not today. He was also a loving husband, doting on Euphemia, his wife of many years, but alas, not today. And Harry was a good employer, but also not today, because today... His stomach was giving him jip by means of the halibut to which the phrase long time no see could not happily be applied. He hadn't liked the look of it when it was on his plate, halibut being a fish which tends to look back at you reproachfully, and for the last few hours he'd envisaged the damn thing looking at the insides of his stomach. The problem was, he thought, that Euphemia still remembered the good old days when they were as poor as church mice and therefore necessarily frugal with their money, and such habits bite to the bone, very much like the inadvisably digested fish which had been swimming somewhere in the vicinity of Harry's bowels and threatening to swim a lot further. Regrettably, Harry was a man brought up to eat everything that was put in front of him, and that meant everything eaten up. When he had finally exited from the privy, where he fancied the damn fish had been watching him from the bowl, he had pulled the chain with such vehemence that it broke, causing the woman whom he sometimes called the Duchess to have words with him. And since words tend to lead to more words, nasty, spiteful little words flew on both sides, words that if Harry could help it would be flung back to the wretched fish which had started it all. But instead, he and his wife had had what they had known all of their lives as an up-and-downer. And, of course, Effie, born in the next-door gutter to Harry, could give at least as good as she got in such situations, especially when armed with a quite valuable and decorative jug. Effie had a voice on her that at times could make a barrow-boy blush, and she had called Harry the King of Shit, causing him to do what he never, ever wanted to do, which was to raise his hand in anger especially since the jug with which his wife was now armed was also quite a heavy one. Besides being from the McSweeney dynasty and therefore frighteningly expensive, although he thought 
When he looked at the porcelain shards on the floor, they didn't look that expensive. Of course, it would blow over, it always did, and genuine marital harmony would drift into its accustomed place in the household. But nevertheless, all afternoon Sir Harry prowled around his compound like an old lion. King of shit! Well, yes, and because of him the streets were clean, or at least considerably cleaner than they had been before what might be called the Harry King dynasty. He mused as he wandered that his work was all about those unimaginable things that people wanted to leave behind them, and therefore there wasn't much for him on the top table of society. Oh, yes, he was Sir Harry, but he knew that Effie really wished they could leave behind the whole stinking business. After all, she said, you're as rich as creosote as it is. Can't you find something else to do? Something that people actually want rather than need? Generally speaking, Harry was not very good at philosophy. He was proud of what he had achieved, but a tiny part of him was agreeing with Effie that surely there was something better for him than chasing the pure, a term, technically speaking, for dogmuck, much prized by the tanneries, and making certain the unreliable septic tanks of the city didn't overflow. Somebody had to do it, of course, and it wasn't as if it was actually Harry himself, not for many years, since he paid the gong-firmers, dunnikin-divers, and now a whole army of goblins as well to do the dirty work. Still, what he needed now, he thought, was an occupation that was manly without being despicable. Absent-mindedly, he sacked his latest lawyer, a dwarf who had been caught with his nasty little fingers in the till, and managed to do it without actually throwing the little bugger all the way down the stairs. Unusually despondent, Harry prowled on, seeking to calm his nerves. At the edge of his compound, he sniffed the air so far as he dared. There was a wind blowing from the hub, and he turned to face it, and caught a tantalising smell, a manly smell, a smell with a purpose, a smell that wanted to take him places, and it said, Promise. The relationship between Moist von Lipwig and Adorabel Deerhart was firm and happy, quite possibly because they didn't see each other for substantial periods of time, since she was immersed in the running of the Grand Trunk, and he was dealing with the bank, the post office, and the mint. Despite what Lord Vetinari thought, Moist did have proper work to do at these institutions, and that was, in his own mind, called holding it all together. Things worked. In fact, they worked very well, but they worked, Moist thought because he was always seen in the bank, or the mint, or the post office, being Mr. Bank, Mr. Post Office, and Mr. Mint. He chatted to people, talked to them about their work, asked how their wives and husbands were, having memorised the names of all the family members of the person he was talking to. It was a knack, a wonderful knack, and it worked a treat. You took an interest in everybody, and they took an interest in their work, and it was vitally important that he was always around to keep the magic flowing. As for Adora Bell, the clacks were in her bones. It was her legacy, and woe betide anyone who got between it and her, even if that anyone was her husband. Unless they were a golem. During the dark days when the family clacks company had been usurped by businessmen, Adora Bell had diverted her energies into golem emancipation. 
She was still involved with the Golem Trust, but the pace of change in Ankh-Morpork, she was pleased to notice, meant that the Golems were quite happily trusting themselves. Somehow the system worked as hard as they did, and so they could afford Crossley, the butler, and Mrs. Crossley, too. Adorabel was, as even she knew, a creatively bad cook, mostly because she thought cookery a waste of time for a woman with even half a mind. And since Moist took pretty much the same stance when it came to manual labour, the arrangement seemed to suit all parties. Their house in Schoon Avenue had a gardener, too, who appeared to come with the territory. Crisp, which was his only name, was also a decent handyman and quite talkative, although Moist never understood her word, he said. He came from somewhere in the shires and spoke using a vocabulary that was theoretically more porkian, but in reality had lots of straw in it with the syllable R working hard in every conversation. He made cider in his shed at the bottom of the garden, utilising the apple trees that the previous owner had carefully cherished. He also, as a matter of course, cleaned the windows, and with the help of an enormous box full of every type of hammer, saw, drill, screwdriver and chisel, bags of nails and a number of other items that Moist could not recognise, and moreover did not wish to, made Moist's life easy whilst making Chris possibly the richest handyman in the neighbourhood. Moist von Lipwig had done some heavy work once and couldn't see any future in it, but he could look at it for hours, provided other people were doing it, of course, and clearly some of them liked what they were doing, and so he shrugged and felt happy that Crisp was happy being a handyman, whilst Moist was happy not picking up anything that was heavier than a glass. After all, his work was unseen and depended on words, which were fortunately not very heavy and didn't need grease. In his career as a crook they had served him well, and now he felt somewhat smug at using them to the benefit of the citizenry. There was a difference between a banker and a crook, there really was, and although it was very, very teeny, Moist felt that he should point out that it did exist, and besides, Lord Vetinari always had his eye on him. So everybody was happy, and Moist went to work in very clean clothes and with a very clean conscience. Having washed and dressed in said clothes in his private bathroom, separate bathrooms, of course, being the key to any happy marriage, Moist went to see his wife, practising his smile on the way and endeavouring to look cheerful. You never knew with Adorabelle. Spike, to her fond husband, her brother had called her killer, but he meant it in a nice way. She could be quite acerbic. After all, she ran the whole clack system these days. She also liked goblins, which was why there were some living behind the wainscoting of the house and others in the roof. They smelled, but the smell wasn't, once you got over the shock, all that bad. The compensation was that the goblins had taken the clacks into their scrawny hearts, one and all. The wheels and levers fascinated them. Moist knew that, generally, goblins hid out in caves and insalubrious places that humans didn't bother about. But now, when suddenly they were being treated as people, they had found their element, which was generally the sky. They could scramble up a clax tower faster than any man could run, and the rattling, back-and-forth, clanking and relentlessly busy machinery of the clax had them in its grip. Already, after only a few months in the city, the goblins had improved the efficiency of the clacks across the stove plains threefold. They were creatures of darkness, but their perception of light was remarkable. 
There was a whole malignity, the official collective noun for a bunch of goblins, of goblins, up on the roof, but if you wanted your clacks to fly fast, you didn't use the term out loud. The villains of the storybooks had found their place in society at last. All it needed was technology. When Dick Simnel walked into Sir Harry King's compound, he wasn't at all certain how you spoke to grand folk. Nevertheless, he managed to talk his way through the people in the front office, who had a rather jaundiced look and appeared to consider it their duty to ensure that no one should ever get to see Sir Harry King, especially greasy-looking young men with wild eyes trying hard to look respectable despite their extremely old clothing, which these gatekeepers thought needed something, possibly a bonfire. However, Dick had the persistence of a wasp and the sharpness of a razor blade, and so, eventually, he ended up deposited in front of the big man's desk like a supplicant. Harry, red-faced and impatient, looked over his desk and said to him, "'Lad, time is money and I'm a busy man. You told Nancy down on reception that you've got something I might like. Now stop fidgeting and look me in the face square-like. If you're another chancer wanting to bamboozle me, I'll have you down the effing stairs before you know it.' The wonderfully colourful oak wood of the effing forest was much in demand for high-class joinery. Dick stared soundlessly at Harry for a moment, then said, Mr. Sir King, I've made a machine that can carry people and goods just about everywhere, and it don't need horses, and it's run on water and coal. It's my machine, I built it, and I can make it even better if you can see your way clear to advance me some investment. Harry King reached into his pocket and pulled out a heavy gold watch. Dick couldn't help but notice the famous gold rings that he had been told Sir Harry always wore, possibly as an ensemble of socially acceptable and extremely valuable knuckle-dusters. "'Did I hear you right? It's Mr Simnall, isn't it? I'll give you five minutes to catch my fancy, and if I think you're just another thimble-rigger on the slant, you'll go out of here rather more quickly than you came in.' "'My old mother always said, seeing is believing, Mr King, and so I've come prepared. If you can give me some time to get lads and horses,' Dick coughed and continued, I have to tell you, Mr. Sir Harry, I took the liberty of parking them right outside your compound because I talked to people and they said that if Harry King wants something to start happening, it has to happen fast. He hesitated. Was that a glint in Harry's eye? Well, the magnate grumbled rather theatrically, young man, even though time is money, talk is cheap. I'll come out in five minutes and you'd better have something solid to show me. "'Thank you, Sir King. That's very kind of you, sir. "'But we'll have to get Boiler warmed up first, sir, "'and so we'll have her throbbing in no more than two hours, sir.' "'Harry King took his cigar out of his mouth and said, "'What? Throbbing?' "'Dick smiled nervously. "'You'll see, sir. You'll see.' "'Very shortly afterwards, and just in time, "'smoke and steam enveloped the compound, "'and Harry King saw, and indeed was amazed.' And Harry King really was amazed. There was something insect-like about the metallic contraption, bits of which were spinning incessantly while the whole thing was shrouded in a cloud of smoke and steam of its own making. Harry King saw purpose personified, purpose, moreover, that would be unlikely ever to ask for a day off for its granny's funeral. Over the noise he shouted, "'What did you say this thing is called, my lad?' 
Iron girder, sir. An engine that uses the expansion or rapid condensation of steam to generate power. Power for locomotion. That is to say, movement, sir. And if you'd allow us to lay down her rails, sir, we can really show you what she can do. Rails? Aye, sir. She runs on an iron road, you'll see. Suddenly there was the sound of a banshee on heat as Wally moved a lever. "'Sorry, sir, you have to let steam out. It's all about harnessing steam. You heard her singing, sir. She wants motion. Power is going to waste while she's just sitting here. Give me time and allow me to put a test track around your compound. We'll have her running very soon, I promise you.' Harry was uncharacteristically silent. The thrumming of the machine was like a kind of spell— Again the metal voice of steam rang out over the compound like a lost soul, and he found himself unable to leave. Harry wasn't a man for introspection and all that rubbish, but he thought that this, well, this was something worth a closer look. And then he noticed the faces of the crowd around the compound, the goblins climbing up to gawp at this new raging devil, which was nevertheless under the control of two lads in flat caps and very little to speak of in regard to teeth. Getting his thoughts lined up properly, Harry turned to Dick Simnel and said, Mr Simnel, I'll give you two days, no more. You have your chance, mister, don't waste it. I am, as I say, a busy man. Two days to show me something that astounds me. Go on. Dwarfs and men sat and listened intently to the old boy sitting in the corner of the treacle miner, known by habitués as the Sticky Head. Human, possibly, but with a beard any respectable dwarf would have coveted, who had decided to share with them his knowledge of the treacle mining world. "'Gather round, lads, fill my pot, and I'll tell you a tale that's dark and sticky.' He looked meaningfully at his empty tankard, and there was laughter as it was replaced by some well-wisher, and as he sipped his ale he began his tale. Years back unexpected deep treacle reserves had been discovered under Ank Morpork, fathoms down, and as every treacle miner knew, the lower the treacle the better the texture and therefore the better the taste. In truth, and in Ank Morpork at least, there was very little friction between dwarf clans on this matter, and the question of who would be allowed to mine the discovery was amiably dealt with by the old boys, dwarf and human. Everyone conceded that when it came to working underground there was nothing like the dwarfs. But, to the dismay of the older miners, very few of the dwarf youngsters of Ankh-Morpork were at all interested in mining under any circumstances. And so the grizzled old boys welcomed any local miners of any species to work under the venerable streets of Ankh-Morpork for the sheer pleasure of seeing treacle being properly produced again. And the miners, whoever they were, went about their sticky business in the search for the deep, shimmering treacle. And something happened somewhere up near the shires, where the dwarf miners had been working a reasonable seam part of which was under land which at the time belonged to the low king of the dwarfs. In those not-too-distant days, political relationships between human and dwarf were somewhat nervy. On the day when things came to a head, there had been a sudden fall of dark toffee, extremely precious and very unusual, but feared by every treacle miner because of its tendency to spontaneously collapse into the tunnels. 
According to the eyewitnesses, both humans and dwarfs were mining underground while politicians argued on both sides of the political divide, and this fall was mostly on the human side of the seam, with many men trapped in a deluge of unrelenting stickiness. He hesitated for a moment and said, "'Or it might have been the dwarf side now that I come to think about it.' He looked embarrassed but continued, "'Well, it doesn't really matter now who they were, but it was a long time ago anyway.' The miners working the seam from the other side of the fall heard that there were many miners down there, trapped and drowning in refined sugar derivatives, and said, Come on, lads, get the gear together and let's get them out of there. The old boy hesitated a further moment, possibly for effect, and said, Bah, of course, that meant they had to enter territory that required going through two bloody security barriers manned by armed guards. Guards, moreover, who were not that bothered about miners and were certainly not going to let any of the enemy down into their sovereign soil. Another significant pause, then the tale raced on. All the miners had piled up against the barriers. Someone said, we can't tackle them, they got weapons. And they looked at one another in what was known as wild surmise. And then another voice yelled, but so have we, when you look at it the right way, and ours are bigger. And the speaker waved his enormous fist and said, And we're mining every day, not standing around looking smart. And so, as one dwarf, or possibly human, they rushed the barricade, and the guards, realising they were failing to frighten people, ran for cover as the miners, with the picks and shovels, came down on them at speed, and sixty miners were saved from a very sticky situation on both sides of the seam. Nothing official happened afterwards because officialdom didn't want any part of the shame of it. The old boy looked around and glowed as if he himself had been one of those miners, and quite possibly he might have been, and his tankard was topped up once again, and he said wistfully, "'Of course, that was the old days. I wish it still was.'" It was just short of the end of the second day when Simnel and his lads had Iron Girder chuffing slowly and purposefully along a short circular track in Harry's compound. And Harry couldn't help noticing that the look of the engine had changed, and it now seemed somehow smoother than before. In fact, he thought, he had been ready to say sleek, though it was hard to think of what looked like fifty tons of steel as sleek. But yes, he thought, why not? It shouldn't be beautiful, but she was. Stuttering, stinking, growling, smoking, but so very beautiful. Dick said cheerfully, We're taking it slow, Mr. Harry. We need to put down some real ballast before we can let her rip. But she grows on you, don't you think? And when we build her up and added on wagons and such like, there'll be no stopping her. And there it was again. It really ought to be a he, Harry mused but somehow the she stuck relentlessly. And then Harry's rather crumpled brow furrowed even further. This young lad clearly knows his stuff, he thought, and he said his machine could carry people and goods. But who'd want to ride on this clanking great monster? On the other hand, the compound smelled of steam and coal and hot grease, manly, healthy smells. Yes, He'd give them that little bit longer, perhaps another week. After all, coal wasn't expensive and he wasn't paying them anything. Harry King realised 
he was feeling unusually happy. Yes, they could have a little more time, and the smell was good, unlike those he and Effie had put up with over the years. Oh, yes, they could definitely have their time, though he'd need to keep the lads on their toes. He looked up, and the clax towers blinked relentlessly, and Harry King saw the future.